Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now, to what you've been waiting to hear. Sister Finlayson Fife, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks. Good, good. For my listeners, today we have Jennifer Finlayson Fife uh, with us. Many of you may already know her. Uh, Jennifer, if you don't mind, give us a little bio of who you are and what your what your credentials are, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in a family of 10 in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Uh, my father was a professor there, and um, went to BYU as an undergraduate and studied psychology and women's studies, and then went to Boston uh, to get my master's and PhD at Boston College. And um, I wrote my dissertation on LDS women and sexual desire. Um, and specifically looking at the question of what's the effect of patriarchies and gender role ideology on women's relationship to their sexuality. And then since then, I, I graduated from Boston College in 2002. Um, I met my husband in Boston. We got married, and um, we have three kids. And then I started a private practice here in Chicago about six years ago. So, so yeah. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you on. This is going to be kind of a, an interesting topic as we talk about sexuality within the LDS culture. And, and this will obviously be a different kind of episode than I normally kind of tackle. And so, uh, if I open my mouth and say something that's way off base, Jennifer, please, uh, please correct some of the false notions I have or thoughts I have. But, but this is interesting. And I'll give you a little background. I did a, a fireside when I was serving as a bishop in our ward on sexuality. Uh, and I address lots of issues, uh, child abuse, um, pornography, uh, a healthy sexual relationship between a couple. It was interesting. Most of the firesides I did as a bishop, uh, a third of the ward or half the ward would show up. On this one, there were about six couples that came and everybody else was scared to death to touch this topic. And I thought it was well done. I thought I covered things in a way that gave people some room uh, and with, with tact and with concern. But uh, And those who came loved it. But people are afraid of it. Why are we as Latter-day Saints afraid of 
of the topic of sexuality? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know entirely. I would say in general, even though it doesn't look like it in our very, very sort of sexually explicit popular culture, I think people in general have a lot of angst about sexuality because I think it's one of the most powerful currencies of relating to ourselves and to other people. And so I think that it's not easy for anyone, LDS or otherwise, to move into a mature relationship to one's sexuality. I think in the church and in church culture, it's more, it's even more punctuated and underscored because uh, we embrace sexual conservatism. You know, we embrace a, a, a more restricted version of how to legitimately express one's sexuality. And sometimes in order to promote that and sustain that in the church, we, I think, use a lot of scare tax tactics and a lot, of, we promote unwittingly perhaps a lot of angst around sex. And so, you know, people will say, like, you can't have a discussion. I mean, I've been asked to give a lot of presentations in different wards and so on. You can't do it in a chapel. You know, <laughs> ideas like that, you know, or I, <laughs> or I couldn't possibly have sex with my husband with the Book of Mormon on the nightstand. You know, like this idea that somehow this hedonistic uh, area of our lives, this area that, you know, promotes and provides pleasure is incongruent with goodness or godliness. And I mean, I think we have tons of theology that would work against that idea, but culturally or sort of internally, and I think particularly because of the ideas of purity, you know, we really connect purity with goodness um, and then purity with sort of non-sexuality or lack of sexual desire. And particularly for women, we do this. But I think this is really it, that frame on sexuality, I think, is the wrong one. It's an unhelpful one. And it makes it really hard to move into mature sexuality without feeling like you've somehow forsaken or lost something. Um, if, yeah. if somehow can, can you really have desire, a kind of gritty desire uh, towards your spouse? I mean, I think a lot of people imagine that the best people out there are, have a very cleaned up version of sex, if any at all. Yeah, that's good. And it, it's interesting you say that because I remember when I was kind of promoting this fireside, I went into our ward library and there was a couple there and, and uh, made the comment about the fireside. Said, no, 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 thank you. We, we've we already got things figured out. We really don't need any advice. So they were very turned off to any kind of discussion. And it wasn't like I promoted it with, hey, we're going to talk about intimacy between a couple. It was more of just generally we're going to cover six or seven different things in regards to sexuality. I wanted to follow that up with a question. Um, I want I wanted to kind of talk about, and maybe you kind of already hit on it, but maybe there's a few other things you want to add. In in our culture and our doctrine, there are several things that maybe impact how we grasp at sexuality. Would you mind speaking for a moment of any other thoughts you've got on the effects that LDS culture, LDS doctrine uh, have in the view that we walk away with in regards to sexuality? So, I mean, what I would say is, you know, one of the things I love about Mormon doctrine is that it's a very sex-positive doctrine, in my opinion, because we really do embrace the body as as an inherent part of our spiritual maturity, as our maturity as, as moral beings. And, you know, I think a lot of Christian theologies see the body as sort of a necessary evil, but something that actually undermines one's spirituality, where we see, we believe in um, parents in heaven that are embodied and that are sexual beings, you know, that, that have all the same parts and passions that we do. And so... If you take our theology very seriously, you know, meaning 
at the core, we believe you need a body in order to progress spiritually and to become more like our parents in heaven. And that our sexuality is a part of that body. Right? So that our sexuality is a part of our progression um, in that realm. And rather than, you know, sort of one of my ideas that I feel passionately about, you know, not a framework of purity, do I think it's helpful, but a framework of wisdom, you know, that we become more wise in the sexual realm, that we use our sexuality for good. Uh, but not that sexuality is incongruent with godliness or implicitly bad, nor is it implicitly good for that matter. It's really what we do with our sexuality that makes all the difference. I think though that, you know, there's two, there's two things that are going on in the cultural sense that is that patriarchy and sexual anxiety, in my opinion, have infused the messages that we give around sexuality. So we celebrate sexuality in theory, but I think we model a lot of um, fear around it. And so, I mean, I think on the one hand, I agree with some angst because I think, as I said earlier, sexuality is a really powerful currency and so it can be used for ill and, and it can be highly destructive. And I think in this sense, I agree with the idea that sex can be next to murder in the sense that, you know, it can be, it, I, I think there's, there are a few ways to harm someone more than through some form of sexual assaults or exploitation. So, um, but, but I would say, you know, um, and similar to that, I guess I would say, I don't think pleasure is inherently good or bad, but we are quite afraid of pleasure. And so I think this is part of the cultural anxiety around sex, uh, masturbation is that if the pleasure isn't being given to someone else, that somehow it's going to work to our destruction. Uh, rather than the idea of what's the context of pleasure, what's the relational context of it, and, you know, pleasure at what price. Um, and then I would say the anxiety around pleasure and sexuality in a patriarchal culture, that we give a lot of that, we disproportionately saddle women with that anxiety. And that is to say that, you know, as a men in the church are afraid of their sexuality too often. And so if you can see women construct them as less sexual than men, that patriarchies do, that we do in the church, um, that then you can say, well, you're responsible for the thoughts and feelings and indirectly the behaviors of men. You know, they're just barely keeping a grip on this sexuality. So if right. you wear that sleeveless top, you know, it's all over. I mean, you're responsible for what he does with you if he lusts after you and so on. And I know that people would say, oh, no, you would never say, you know, that person is responsible. But that's the message that I think we really give around modesty is that, you know, that women can't really embody or own their sexuality because it's going to, to undermine the spirituality of the men they're in association with. And I think that's a very constraining way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, you know, we, we teach boys that modesty is wearing clothes and we teach girls exactly what length everything has to be and, and how they should conduct themselves in every instance. So I, I certainly understand how you get to, get to that. And, and I certainly feel like that happens a lot. And we do a lot of things within our lessons and in the way in which we teach certain subjects in church that we come across is, like you said, almost giving our young women the idea that they're responsible for the bad behaviors that our young men make. And if you if you look at the way we talk to men and women in my dissertation research I did a lot on this was you know you talk to men about sexual desire young men and you're know, keeping a keeping a firm grip on it and then you know con con containing it and then once you get married it'll be sexual communion for eternity <laughs> that will be the reward right. but you're talking to men about desire to young women you talk about being desirable you know being appealing being good 
um, being kind. And one of the ways to be desirable is to not be sexual, to not be too sexual. You know, be attractive, of course, but you don't want to be used already, so to speak. You don't want to be chewed gum or the mangled flower or any of those other horrible object lessons that I got anyway. And so the licked cupcake, the licked cupcake, <laughs> exactly. So you know, there's there's a that idea is a way of just sort of stripping women of the legitimacy of their sexuality and um, feeling like they they get an extra dose of that idea that sexual purity is a part linked to goodness, which is linked to desirability. So right. no, I, I agree completely. I want to kind of follow that up. You talked, you mentioned masturbation, and I, this subject is obviously there's going to be some people who turn into this episode and are probably going to flip the switch and turn this off, but I hope people will listen through it. We're, we're talking about some sensitive subjects, obviously, but I think it's good to get the uh, professional opinion on some of these these ideas that we have running through our culture. And I'm going to pose these in the same question, but I realize that there may be different answers to both of these. We have in our church, with the issue of both masturbation and oral sex, we have President Packer, who's written an article to the young men uh, of the church, that explicitly talks about how we conduct ourselves in terms of the issue of masturbation, and obviously it is a uh, considered a sin in the church and something that we should step away from and, and not do. And we also have the issue of oral sex, which many young people in the church may not realize this, but Elder President Spencer W. Kimball sent out a, uh, a letter, I believe in the 70s, that was sent to bishops and state presidents that termed oral sex as a sin. And many older Latter-day Saints are aware of this, and so it's become a very taboo issue. Uh, any thoughts you have on those two subjects and from your professional standpoint, how we should maybe view those two? Well, I'll start with oral sex. I mean, I would say that, yeah, it was in 1982. I think in 1978, there was a temple recommend question that was, do you engage in any unholy sexual practices? And then in 1982, um, President Kim Kimball or the First Presidency um, described in a letter to bishops that was supposed to be read over the pulpit that, you know, they defined oral sex as an unnatural sex act. And um, I can't imagine them reading that over the pulpit now that I'm saying that. <laughs> I'm trying to think about how that would have been delivered. Maybe maybe it wasn't read over the pulpit. Maybe it was given in, in individual discussion or something. But, yes, and I've had, you know, what I understand from reading about that is that there was quite a bit of pushback from some members of the church writing letters to the first presidency. And, and so it was never recanted, but it wasn't ever spoken of again. Um, and then in 1985, the temple recommended question changed um, from that, do you participate in the National Sex Act acts to do you live the law of chastity? Um, and then in 1995, I think uh, Hinckley stated that we we have to be the judge of our own sexual behavior. We have to determine as a couple whether or not we're engaging in impure or unholy practices. Um, and it further, not in that same statement, but in another talk, talked about the fact that sex isn't just for procreation, but also for the mutual uplifting and nurturing of a couple's bond and relationship to one another. So, I mean, I think that the current church council certainly, I think, leaves this open for a husband and wife to decide what they think is best um, for themselves and what what constitutes holiness or what constitutes goodness or depravity, for example, in their own relationship. And um, I do, I would say, you know, I've had older couples that I've worked with where one really kind of understands the church doesn't take much of a position on this anymore, and yet it just feels like wrong. It just feels wrong to them, and they have a hard time letting go of that idea. 
Um, but what I would say is that, you know, I frankly, the way I think about sexuality um, and sexuality and marriage in particular, I think that missionary style sex can be very unholy, even in a couple married in the temple. <laughs> and and what I mean by that is what makes sex unholy is, is not the position one is in, but the intention that's in one's heart. So right. it's like with what motivation or what, what form of relating are you doing um, are you there to take advantage, to pressure, to say, you know, you owe me this because you're my spouse? Um, or are you there really at an act of sharing of yourself and knowing your spouse? Is it really about um, coming to a more powerful connection with one another? And then I would say, you know, it is holy to be a, open to who one another is and what one another's desires are, even if it makes you uncomfortable. I mean, even if you're like, gosh, you know, that just doesn't appeal to me. But I would say that's how all sexual evolution happens is being willing to step towards, you know, behaviors that don't at first sound appealing. I mean, when I was eight and I learned about intercourse, I prayed to God that he'd change it before I got to be an adult because I really did want to have kids. (laughs) And, you know, so that initial discomfort is normal. And then, you know, sometimes you step towards what makes you uncomfortable anyway, and then you start to integrate and internalize new possibilities for yourself. And I think in happily married, passionate couples, there's a willingness to to explore different possibilities and thinking not about, you know, there's no room for eroticism or pleasure. That's, that's not the problem. In my mind, it's more around how am I relating to my spouse. And um, um, an author and clinician that I've read a lot and done some training with talks about in one of his books written for in his book written for clinicians around basically he defines a hierarchy of relating to another human being and basically goes from a very highly objectified perspective on the human being to a very spiritual perspective on the human being. So I it to quote Martin Buber the theologian an I it relationship where I relate to you as an object to validate me and I don't really care what you want and I don't I don't really care about your feelings. I have I have a right to your body. That would be an I-it relationship to an I-thou relationship, um, which is I see you as another human being who doesn't owe me anything, who's another child of God who um, I honor and respect and want to love and care for and open myself up to. So um, I think it's measured more along that spectrum than any particular behavior. Excellent. And then your thoughts on the masturbation issue. Well, I would say, you know, yeah, this is a touchy subject, so to speak. This this is how I think about it. I would say that um, I think Natasha Helper Parker wrote a really courageous piece on this a couple years ago, Um, and I agree with her position. I, I have thought for a long time that basically the the open secret let me say it like this in our church way of talking about sexuality we we embrace the idea that sexuality gets discovered in the realm of being married on your marriage mar- sorry on your wedding night that's when you discover you have this thing called sex <laughs> sexuality right and that's an open secret in our culture of course that's not true and of course people have come into some relationship with with little except with some exception of course some relationship to their sexuality prior to sharing it with another person and i would say not only is that not a problem i mean that's actually really important because if you think about intimacy intimacy is i'm willing to share who i am with you and if i don't know anything about who i am 
in this realm, it gets much harder to know what it is I want to share. I don't have a relationship with myself first to even know what it is to share it with you. And I'm not so much saying, you know, people should masturbate. It's more that there should be less shame around knowing your capacity for eroticism, knowing your capacity for pleasure, and recognizing this is a part of normal human psychological development. And, you know, um, in uh, their book, Linda and Richard Iyer, they wrote a book on how to talk to your child about sex. And they're an LDS couple um, who wrote this book for the larger um, public, meaning not just for an LDS audience. And they talked about, you know, that they basically said, you know, ideally, in their mind, ideally, you you save this sexual expression for marriage, but not if you masturbate, but when you masturbate, was what how they suggested saying it to your child. Think about the person that you love. Think about the person that you hope to be in a relationship with someday and expressing yourself to them through your sexuality. I mean, in my mind, a much bigger problem, um, and this is really available to adolescents, is moving into a very objectified, um, non-relational view of sexuality and having their sexual development happen around that. That really messes up one's capacity for a healthy sexual relationship with another flawed human being, right? But I think coming to know your sexuality, to be aware of it, to be grateful for it, and to see it as something that you will be able to share with someone else you love deeply is a healthy part of becoming ready to move into marriage. And and in my, I mean, of course, like any any appetite that we have, it, it can be used for ill. It can run us, you know, just like a, um, a food addiction, for example. We, of course, we get to take pleasure from eating. Eating is a good thing in our lives. Um, anyone who's eating compulsively or to manage emotions, it's problematic. I would say the same thing for masturbation or becoming aware of one's sexuality. If it's undermining your ability to live functionally, if it's undermining your ability to relate to real people and to have a real relationship with other people, it's problematic. But I would never go so far as to say that having an awareness and a connection to your own capacity for eroticism is, is wrong. I would say it's part of healthy development. And in my opinion, the women that I interviewed um, for my dissertation, those, not my opinion, in my experience is the research, the women who had masturbated, even if they repented of it and, you know, felt like I'm going to put this away and wait until I'm married, they had a much, much easier transition into marriage uh, than women who had no awareness or very limited awareness. And so, you know, and part of the reason is you don't just show up clueless, but I would say the other reason is that you don't feel so much. I think one of the problems in marital sexuality often is there's this feeling like, especially for women, that my sexuality belongs to a man and he has to discover it for me and he has to give me, teach me how to have pleasure. And not only is that a huge burden on the husband, but it's, it's also... I would say, if you don't take responsibility for your sexuality, it's not going to happen. And furthermore, if you don't really take ownership of your sexuality, you feel too taken over through sexual behavior to ever want it. And I, I just wrote a blog post on Rational Face about this idea just last week around the idea that if you feel like you're 
sexuality is adding to someone else, but not an expression of you, you will not desire it because it, it, it makes you feel like you're basically disappearing. And so this is really another piece and why I think it's so important to have some connection to your own capacity for pleasure before you step into a marriage. I got it. That's, that's great. And I'll share with you, having served as a bishop, this is this is a, a subject that I think every bishop in the church encounters, uh, having to help people when people come in and are, are essentially having this discussion. And, and it was always tough because, one, you're almost fighting an uphill battle against the culture of shame for this issue. And, and you also find that there's two things that can happen. You can, you can show approval for the issue and somebody can then, um, essentially maybe go down the wrong track. You can also, I'm not, I'm talking complete approval and allow it to get worse and worse and to be something that completely absorbs them. And, and the other side of it is to condemn it in such a manner that one feels such shame that depression and even more severe issues, uh, can arise from that. And so there was this fine line to walk. But one of the things I would simply share for my listeners, and uh, and you're welcome to, to agree or disagree or speak further on this, but one of the things I think we've got to get to, and I don't want to feel like I'm coming out against the church's stance, but one of the things we have to get to is to recognize the level of this sin in its spectrum, if we want to call it sin. And maybe the the end goal is to help people to recognize that a that these types of behaviors have their place, that maybe the end goal is to reduce the amount of times these kinds of things happen, but not to draw a line in the sand and say, if you can't stop doing this, then you are less than. Um, I, I just struggle with that. And I, and I know I'm trying to, I maybe the way I'm wording it is coming across even wrong to you, Jennifer, but I feel like it's such a difficult issue to speak openly and honestly on without feeling like you're fighting against the church. What I would say is what I think would be a really helpful frame for parents and church leaders alike to start invoking more is a frame of sexual prudence and wisdom. How do I use my sexuality for good? Um, not that this is like um, this lurking, how to say it, this, this force that's going to drag you down. That's how I think we think about it. And so if there's right. even a step towards it, you're like you're, you're, you're on a slippery slope into hell as opposed to that, no, of course your sexuality is there and you can even feel it now, you know, and talking to adolescents, for example. And the question is, how am I using this? Am I using it to manage pain in my life? Am I using it to, you know, disconnect from people? Am I using it to, you know, what is my assessment of how I'm relating to my own sexuality? Do I relate to it with a sense of optimism and, um, um, what's the word, like kind of positive anticipation about what's possible down the road? I mean, which I would think of as a very healthy stance. Do I see it as this frightening, scary thing that I feel like is going to take control of me? So helping people to grapple with the reality of its presence, to see it as something God has given them, and then to think about how do I relate to it with wisdom? Because that's a skill you need for life. I mean, not just up until you get married. <laughs> you need it for life. And so if we don't start talking to people about it as a, it, with less shame, but also helping them think in a discerning and um, really grounded way around what's the meaning of what they're doing, that's what I think would be much more useful. Because absolutely right. and, you can use masturbation for ill and pornography for ill. And, you know, no question, you, many people do. But also I find it's like it's like the food addiction. It's like the more you say to someone, 
don't even think about chocolate cake. The fact that you even want it means that you are out of control and disgusting, okay? Well, that person is like thinking about chocolate cake all the time, and then in a secret moment, they go and they binge, right? It's it, If you can't come into a healthy relationship with your passions and desires, they will control you. You won't control them. Right. And, and to take it one step further, I mean, we live in a culture where if one is participating in this act, even at a minimal um, interval, we're talking about telling people that they're not worthy to go on a mission and, and all the repercussions that come of that. And if you can imagine a young man who is struggling with this and this is just a normal feeling that he has – um, and then to be told that, sorry, because of this thing, you, you can't serve the Lord. I just, I feel like it's one of these things that as a culture, as a church, as an institution, we're going to have to grow up just a little bit in this area and, and figure out a little better way. Not that we have to condone it, but figure out on the scale really what it is in, and not put so much shame and negativity on it. Right. Absolutely. And I've worked yeah. with a few clients who have tried, you know, to, um, men and women who have tried to live up to that idea. 100%. So they would not allow any sexual feeling or anything. They just like completely sort of, uh, how to say it, like excise sexuality from their psyche. And then for some people, like it stopped working, then it sort of was coming back with a vengeance, right? And then they felt really unable to know how to integrate this into their lives or how to make sense of their sexuality because it was so haunting for them. So my point in saying that is that people who literally live by the exact what the church is sort of has in the past at least officially taken as a position have been not only undermined in their own psychological well-being, but furthermore, they're not even in a position to really move into a sexual relationship with someone. And how good is that? You know, how righteous is that to be terrified of your own sexuality, terrified of being in a relationship with someone else where you would express this? That's not really preparing us to be mature, wise, spiritual people. So we do need, and, and I think there's many people who hear what the church says and they they don't take it literally and they take it with a little bit more like, I know what they mean basically. You know, they mean don't be too indulgent and out of control. And they can accept some amount of, uh, you know, m- movement towards self-exploration, all that without going into shame. But that's people that I think are more robust psychologically than many of the people who are hearing these ideas. And so, meaning they have a tool that allows them to not be undermined by that teaching, but that. I think as a church, we need to do a better job in terms of what we teach. Absolutely. I wanted to maybe take this, and one of the things I want to talk about some point here in this discussion, uh, hopefully before we run out of time, is talk a little bit about sexual abuse, but I want to put that towards the end. I want to talk for a minute kind of along these same subjects we're talking about. It seems like within LDS culture, there is this sexual suppression among Latter-day Saints, and I guess I'll explain it this way. Um, young women in the church, as you pointed out earlier, are essentially taught that they are, until the day they're married, to completely repress any kind of sexuality. And and then all of a sudden, when marriage happens, to just turn that switch on. Young men, on the other hand, are kind of along the same lines, but maybe given a little different way of seeing it. They're they're at least told by their leaders that this these feelings are normal, that they're they're a normal part of life, but that they're not to be used until one enters marriage. And so once so a lot of young men will see this marriage as the fix all for all the feelings they're having up to that point. Both of those are destructive in that when marriage happens, it's impossible to just turn a switch. And it's also impossible 
to think that a healthy sexual relationship in a marriage will then cure any issues that you had prior to that. Would you mind talking for a little bit about sexual suppression among Latter-day Saints and, and maybe a better way of seeing that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of the pieces that I've been speaking to you already, which is that, yeah, I do think we need a framework more around sexual wisdom and around what we really want. For example, many of the, when I've taught young women and, and just women that I spoke with in my dissertation research, you know, many women actually want a context of commitment for the fullest expression of their sexuality. And in this respect, the law of chastity, you know, as I argue in my research, works in women favor because it's a way of especially in the larger culture where sex is sort of disconnected or divorced from commitment that this is a way of domesticating for lack of a better word men's sexuality and asking men to bring their sexuality into a context of commitment and I think for many women this is favorable for them many women naturally want that I'm not saying all women but many women naturally want that um, but they need to think about more in terms of, okay, this is what I would like. I would like to have a relationship in which I, my sexuality is its fullest expression and saved for marriage. Um, and yet I'm excited for that possibility. I feel good about this, this potential and capacity within me. And I feel legitimate in having desire and this capacity. So it's, it's more around, how to say it? It's not that you necessarily let go of our sexual conservatism you don't let go of the law of chastity but you you give people more of a sense of agency within it you give people more of a sense of really choosing and celebrating what they have inside of them what the potential and the capacity they have inside of them and then really give them the sense of choice around how they want how they want to relate to their sexuality how they want to use this uh, power in their lives and when you you know we do lots of hard things. When we do hard things like control our sexual behavior up until marriage, when you give a person a sense of choice around that, it makes it dramatically easier because you're giving it meaning and you're, and you're basically saying, this is who I want to be in the world. And right. it's very different frame than suppression and anxiety. When you externalize the morality, and, and what I mean is like, okay, God thinks I should do this. Men will reject me if I don't do this. Um, you know, I'm a bad person if I have that sexual thought. That psychologically is very straining and undermining of one's spiritual and emotional development, in my opinion. It's not that you can't claim the same ideals, but it's from a very different position, one of agency versus uh, compliance. And I think that this is just sort of something I need to write a blog post on is this idea, because I think about it a lot. I think we, as a church, are hyper-focused on obedience in a, in a way that is not good for us. And I, I think a better frame, and this is related to sexuality, is a frame of integrity. And that's not to say that we don't often, in marriage, in life, defer what we want in the moment for something that we in our hearts believe is better even if we don't know, but we believe it's right and it's an act of faith, but we are asserting a moral choice and saying, I'm going to comply with this ideal because I believe it's good for me. Um, that's a very different, that's an, that's an act of integrity. That's an act of, of moral judgment and taking a position relative to what other people think is good. But it's a very different move than celebrating obedience or compliance or sort of falling in line. 
Um, I, I don't think that's something we're celebrating, right? So sometimes we sort of say obedience is a really good thing. I mean, I understand what people are saying, but I think it's the wrong frame because obedience can be a very, very bad thing, obviously, if you look at Nazi Germany. <laughs> yeah. you know. So I think we need to think of ourselves more as moral actors. That's the only way we're going to become more godlike anyway. We think of ourselves as moral actors relative to a set of ideals and what do we choose in it. And to um, not see our sexuality as inherently bad or good, but what we choose to do with it will define whether we use it for good or not, whether it allows us to move into mature sexual relationships someday or doesn't. And that's a better frame uh, and a healthier frame, I think, for us as a church as a whole. I like that. It, it, rather than feeling compelled, one is empowered uh, to make choices. And I and I like that a lot. And you're right about the obedience issue. We, we preach obedience, obedience, but it's not just obedience just for the sake of obedience. One can be obedient to a host of bad things, as you point out. It's obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, but yet we sometimes want to take that word and what it's being applied to and, and make a whole new category of, of increased things that one needs to be obedient to. Um, and I also think too, you spoke a little bit earlier about being able to kind of choose for oneself what, what is good and, and those things that are harmful or hurtful to, to walk away from. And I think that speaks to the scriptures too in Moroni chapter seven. Those things that draw us closer to Christ are good and those things that don't aren't. And to let people have more flexibility to use the spirit to guide them rather than being over commanded in all things. And I mean, I know that makes a lot of us anxious, like, oh, then people will just be justifying themselves and so on. But the thing is, it's really about genuine integrity because, yeah, you can deceive yourself and you can indulge things and you can, you can pretend that you're just, you know, following your conscience. And that will work to your, what uh, will work against you. But I'm, I'm talking about true integrity. If you really believe something is right, you assert that moral choice to do it. But that's, you know, so I guess I'm just clarifying. It's not about, oh, just do whatever you think is right. It's what, it's really yeah. having the courage to follow what in your heart you really believe is right, whether or not someone's telling you to do it. And if at the end of the day we're going to, as our theology teaches us, have an opportunity to become like Christ, we're going to have to kind of operate in the darkness on our own without commandments to guide us in every jot and tittle and be allowed to to choose for ourselves those things that are good and not, and hopefully to learn from that experience. I, uh, I want to kind of go into uh, a couple, two little questions here and then get back to the issue I want to talk about with sexual abuse. The first one is, and I'm hoping maybe here you can speak a little bit about some of your own work and some of the things that you've got available online for people. But but my question is if, if you might share with us maybe a few basic tips to improve sexuality among uh, married couples in the church and and maybe point us to some of the resources that you have. Sure. It's, it's such a huge question that I'm thinking how to answer it efficiently. But I would say... What um, what I think about often when a couple um, works with me around issues in their marriage is two questions is basically what is one's relationship to their own sexuality? So um, often women, but sometimes men as well, will not have really developed any relationship to their own sexuality. They haven't claimed it. They haven't sort of owned this as a part of themselves. It's maybe something they do because their spouse wants it but not because they really see it as a part of being a whole woman or a whole person. And so they have disowned it and they're in a, a kind of immature relationship to their sexuality. So that's a piece that I often am thinking about. And then I'm also thinking about, and these often go together, but not always, is what's going on in the dynamic of the marriage that makes, that may squelch desire or that undermines this, the, the, the relationship being what either one or both of them wants it to be. And so 
what I would say in the couple dynamics is that, um, you know, whenever there's somebody often the higher desire person will do a lot of pressuring to the lower desire person to get them to want to have sex with them and to validate them through that act and so on. And that can feel like kind of tyranny in one's life and in one's marriage that they don't want to submit to. And so that pressure can often undermine desire. And it's not that there's this person doesn't have any relationship to desire or sexuality. It's that in the context of that marriage, they don't, they don't want to be closer to that person. They don't want to submit to that person. Um, I would say there's other things, you know, in the beginning of marriage or in an early relationship, desire is driven up by things like novelty and uncertainty and, you know, not sure if this person is into you. That can drive desire. But in a long-term marriage, in a long-term relationship, um, desire comes from a different source. It's a different, um, something different is functioning. And it's driven by respect. If you really respect your spouse, it's much easier to want them. It's much easier to want to be close to them. It's much e- easier to, and to open yourself up to them. Similarly, you have to have respect for yourself. It's not just, does my spouse see me as desirable, but do I see me as desirable? And um, this is just too big of a, <laughs> of a no, question. I, I I'm it, trying sure. to think about how to give you like 10 tips for a better sex life. It's hard for me to. Uh, but what I would say is that the the tensions and struggles that often emerge for people in a, in um in their sexual relationship are a good microcosm or kind of elicitation window of what is happening in the larger dynamic of the marriage. And it often those challenges are are exposing if they're willing to look at it at what it says about where they need to develop and grow as a person and where their spouse needs to develop and grow as a person. And oftentimes the higher desire person likes to think of themselves as more mature and more developed than the lower desire person. But that's not my experience. They're just doing their immaturities in different ways. And so this is not the Cosmo 10 tips for a better sex life response. That's okay. <laughs> I would and say I'm... that I'm often working on people, and this is why I believe our sexual relationships are related to our spiritual evolution, is that in order for your sexual relationship to evolve, you have to confront immaturities in your relationship and in yourself, and you come out not just with better sex, but with a better relationship. And so, and I do do um, a couple of online courses that one is just on working on the relationship relationship and then one on sexuality uh, just for LDS couples with assignments and things like that that allow people to do some self-diagnosis of what do they see in themselves, what do they think are the immaturities that lead to dynamics that undermine their happiness in the marriage or in their sexual relationship, and then ways to expand their themselves both by engaging differently, changing patterns, but also engaging differently around their sexuality and their sexual relationship. So, yeah. I was going to say, I, I will put the links for those uh, resources on this episode so people can find it. But would you mind telling people where they can go to, to link up to that? I'll make this easier at some point. But if you go to it's drjenniferfife.blogspot.com, so it's probably going to be better on the link, but drjenniferfife.blogspot.com, D-R-J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. Blogspot.com. Jennifer Fife, sorry, <laughs> say that very clearly. So, um, so that's that links to a blog where I put a lot of different recordings I've done or things that I've written, and then the course courses are available for purchase there. 
Awesome. And I will, I will link up to those so people can find it. So I want to, I want to finish off here with two other questions. And the first one is false assumptions that we make about sexuality. I mean, are there any thoughts you have? Cause I'll tell you maybe a little background. My podcast primarily deals with helping members strip away some of the either nonsense that we find sometimes in our faith or also where people think that there's only one way to see things, help them see that oftentimes within Mormonism there are multiple viewpoints one can have and still be a good, active, worthy Latter-day Saint. Any thoughts you have in regards to sexuality that we haven't covered yet already that that some Latter-day Saints make a false assumption about? Well, one thought that comes to mind is the idea that natural man has something to do with sexuality. And the, the way I think about natural man is like the impulsive, indulgent, self-serving, deceiving part of us. That's what I think of as natural man. So, which of course can happen very much in the sexual realm uh, as it can in any other realm. But that's what I think is an enemy to God, is the part of us that wants to take care of ourselves first, and then we'll think about whether or not we're going to care for other people. And um, I would say we often conflate that with desire, pleasure, the body, that that's natural man, and therefore that's an enemy to God. And I think that's an improper uh, attribution. I think that certainly our sexuality is a big deal, and if we use it improperly, it will be destructive to others and to ourselves. But really thinking about, you know, I think it can be as cruel to uh, be in a marriage and be unwilling to develop yourself sexually because it makes you uncomfortable and sort of claim a kind of higher ground because you're above that, that's just as indecent as being sexually um, indulgent and demanding. And so what I really think is asked of us is that, you know, I've married someone, I've made a commitment to them to bless their life. I've made a commitment to be in a sexual relationship with them. That was the original agreement. Not that people can't change their minds, but often people change their minds without letting their partner know (laughs) that they've now switched the deal. Um, And um, I would say that, you know, being willing to not exploit that inherent dependency that you've now created with another person who has linked their life with yours and to say, I'm willing to challenge the undeveloped parts of myself, whether it's the part of me that can be objectifying, the part of me that can be pressuring, the part of me that can think I'm better than you, or if it's the, or it could be challenging the part of you that doesn't want to deal with sexuality, that doesn't want to really explore this part, that would rather just pressure your spouse to let it go, that we're willing to look at where we want to sort of dig in our heels so we don't have to grow up and blame our partner for that. And that that's that's marriage in a nutshell. Bad marriage right. in a nutshell. And we don't we want our spouse to like reflect back the beautiful image of us and tell us how wonderful we are at every turn, just like they did when we were dating, and say that that's love. Rather than love is I'm willing to look in the mirror that you're holding up, even though it can be humbling, and to really take a good look at myself and say I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a better person. And that includes our sexual relationship. Yeah, and that kind of leads to this. You know, it's very easy within the realm of sexuality to, as you pointed out earlier, hold things over people's head or to use it in an abusive way. And you also talked earlier about the scripture in Alma chapter, I think it's 39 maybe, where we talk about, you know, we've interpreted the scripture to mean that sexual sin is second next to murder. And I love the way you pointed out, because I think we misunderstand that scripture, and there's been several articles written about other interpretations we can make, because that interpretation can be hurtful to those who who slip up and, and sin and make a mistake. 
But you pointed out that in some ways it can be understood to be second next to murder in the damage that it can do. And which leads me to my final question. Up till now we've talked about, I certainly would say serious subjects, but ones at which maybe we can smile at and realize that there's things to improve on and things we can do better. This last one is a very serious subject that unfortunately involves almost entirely negativity and hurtfulness and harm to others. And it's the subject of sexual abuse. And living in a LDS culture, which is patriarchal by nature, there tends to be, and I'm not saying it happens more often, I, I, I no way think that, but that there's more room for things to not be said or reported. And what can we, as just members of the church, what should we be, we be more aware of so that we can have our ears to the ground and, and maybe catch these kinds of things before they happen, or, or at least before they get worse or happen for a long term? So one thing I would say is you, you want to not, uh, I'm trying to think the simplest way to respond to this. One thing I would say is that in my practice, I've worked with many people who were molested in a church building, and it's a, it's a, and, or on a scout, scouting trip, or, you know, through some church affiliated experience. And it's very sobering that that happens where you want to be able to trust and believe that the people that you're in community with are going to be kind to your children, right? Um, and most people, of course, absolutely are. Um, but as Scott Peck said in one of his books um, on evil, on the subject of evil, I can't remember the name of that book right now, he said that basically churches are where the worst and the best people hang out. Um, and that is to say the people that really are trying to become better human beings and challenge themselves and grow and evolve and become more godlike. And then people who like to look like people that are evolving and good people <laughs> and like to look the part, but that it can obscure to the to public scrutiny what's really in their heart. Now, whether or not that's true, I would say it is easy in a church setting and in any setting to offer trust and um, and to not presume that, that someone could harm your child. And I think just as parents, we have to be more scrutinizing than that. And doesn't and I'm not saying never trust anyone. I'm just saying you want to sort of keep your eyes and ears open and aware to make sure there's not any signals that anything is off in your child's relationship to someone else. So, you know, some of the things to be looking for is, you know, if the child's acting out in sexually inappropriate ways. So one of my clients said, you know, my daughter seems to be, you know, focusing on her genital area a lot. And she seems to be, she's using a word that seems like an adult word. And, and I said, you know, that, that's something you want to take very seriously. And so, Anyway, she turned out that the babysitter had been uh, touching the four-year-old and the six-year-old inappropriately. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that situation. But in any case, so, you know, there can be acting out in inappropriate ways. There can be, like I said, using adult words for body parts without, you know, having a clear source. There can be anger, personality changes, mood swings that you can't really account for in your child. Um, not wanting to be alone with a particular child or adult, and you really want to pay attention to that because often the child won't want to tell you what's going on, but they're trying to give the signal that they don't want to go to that person's house and they don't want that babysitter to come over. Um, sometimes the child becomes withdrawn or clinging, nightmares, becoming secretive. You just want to be tracking your child and you don't want to rule out any possibilities, even if it's hard to stay open to them. 
And you want to give your child the message that you really are a safe place to come. So, you know, I have a couple of books that I've uh, read to my kids and are, are just around our house. Uh, one is Your Body Belongs to You, which I think is an excellent book because it's not talking about sexual abuse, but it is really giving children the message that your body is your body and you don't have to hug, hug an adult if they want to hug you. You don't have to. You get to decide who you share your body with, essentially. Like, meaning if you hug Perfect. someone or... Yep. And it's really empowering the child with that message that that's their decision. And even if grandma feels bad about it, that's still a legitimate decision that they can make. And it does it in a very nice way. And then there's another one that was uh, written, I think, by an LDS author called Some Secrets Hurt. And that's another one. I can't think of the title. But I've read all the things to my kids, and we're sort of in an open conversation about it. And I told them about when I was 11 uh, years old in my church building, an older man um, stuck his hand up my skirt and I was completely shocked and I didn't know what to do. And I felt so ashamed. And so I've told my kids this story and I didn't feel like I could tell my mother because even though she had said to me, if anything like that ever were to happen, you could tell me. She did say that once, very uncomfortably, <laughs> giving me the message that, please don't. You know? <laughs> I mean, not, I know she right. wasn't intending to give me that message, but it was. I could tell it made her uncomfortable. And so I didn't feel like I could tell her. And so I ended up telling my brother, my older brother, who went and told the bishop, who told my parents, and that guy never came back to church um, after a few weeks. Um, but I think that was his main reason for coming to church was to touch the girls. But uh, in any case, the reason why I told that story to my kids is that I wanted them to see like this is not this happens to good people, even to mom. And I asked my daughter, do you think that if something ever happened to you, you would be afraid to tell me? And she said, I don't think I'd be afraid, especially if it was a stranger. And I said, can you think of a situation where you wouldn't be sure if you could tell me? And she said, maybe if it was someone in the family, I would be afraid that either you wouldn't believe me or that person would get into trouble. And I said, yes, I totally understand why you'd be afraid of that. And I said, you know, if anything were ever to happen to you, I would want you to know that if you came and told me about it, that you and I could think about what we need to do to help you because nobody should have to deal with that alone. And we could figure out together what would be the best thing for you. Like as a way of making them feel like this parent is really on my side and they won't just go and like, you know, I think kids can be really afraid if they speak up that either they're going to get shamed, not believed, or that something harmful will happen to the other person, which can sometimes be a parent or an uncle or, you know, someone that they care about, even if ambivalently. And so really being in an open dialogue, I think, extremely important and um, helping it be very real for them around both that they could come and talk to you and also that they would still feel some control in the response to it. Excellent. I, uh, I When I heard that, I think the stat is that one out of every three women uh, experience some form of sexual abuse in their life. I, I just thought that's atrocious. When I heard that, I thought we've all got to do more to stop this. I love how you had the discussion with your kids about who who would, you, you know, if it happened with so-and-so, would you be afraid to talk to me? That's something that you've just kind of raised my awareness, and that's a discussion we're not going to have with my kids. I, As you were talking, I'm thinking, okay, when's our next family home evening? We'll, we'll have that kind of a talk. We have had an open discussion with our children, and so I hope the listeners feel that from your counsel, to, to have an open, uh, you know, 
have that channel be open with your kids where they can talk about these things. And uh, maybe just last, just uh, today we're speaking with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Uh, again, Jennifer has got uh, several resources available on her sites. We'll link to those at our page. Um, Dr. Fife, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, you've been an absolute uh, blessing, I think, to those within our culture who struggle with talking about this subject, and I appreciate all you do. Oh